0: Today we are, we're continuing in our series in the book of Romans. We're looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And today we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 if you want to turn there. If you, if you have a Bible with you, you can do that. We're going to be putting the words on the screen here in just a moment. But as we're doing that, I just want to like make an observation and mention something that I've noticed. And it's this. It has become increasingly difficult to get physically lost these days. I was thinking about this the other day. I, I thought, um, you know, you can get turned around or you can miss a street or you can go maybe the wrong way. But with maps on our phones and GPS satellites in the sky, it's pretty difficult um, to get really lost these days, right? And it's pretty easy to get back on track, physically speaking. Um, there was a time, some of us remember this, there was a time when we had these physical, like trifold pieces of paper, that we used to travel with. Anyone remember like traveling with the Atlas? You know, like my family, we had a big book, you know, it was like this massive thing, because who knows, you might end up in Louisiana and need to look at it all of a sudden. You know, you travel with the whole US continent, you know, right there. So so um, we had these maps and, and it was really interesting because if you were traveling with one of those and if you got lost, before you could do anything, before you get unlost, you actually had to figure out where you were. Remember that? That was like a thing. You're like, I, I don't know where I am. You know, and you like have this moment where you kind of look at whoever you're traveling with. You're like, where, where are we? And you're like, I don't know where we are. And like, there is no little triangle on the corner of the map that you press that just suddenly lights up where you are and says you are here. That didn't happen. And so you would sit Remember this? You would sit, those of you that remember, please, maybe you're old enough you don't remember, but um, you remember when you had a map, you would sit and be like, okay, are we here? And this is where you fought with whoever you're traveling with. They're like, no, no, see that mountain? That mountain's here. You're like, no, but this street. And so you would argue about it and and you couldn't go anywhere until you figured it out. You couldn't get to your destination. and, And today it's just so easy. You know, it's like Shazam, here I am and here's the directions to your place. But back then, that's the way it was. And and I mention this because, in my mind, um, today is one of those, like, you are here kind of moments where we pause and we sort of collectively assess, this is where we are. This is where we are as individuals, but this is also where we are as a church. This is what we've been through. This is... Um, this is what we think about where we're going, and so we need to assess where we are because that influences our capacity to get where I think we all want to get to together. This is a day when we consider our present circumstances and we dream about where we're headed. We, we look at the moment that we're in, but then we also turn our vision to the horizon and say, where can we go? And I think that's really important right now. Um, I think it's important because a lot of people are asking really important questions these days. I'm hearing it all the time because I think uh, the circumstances of the past several years have just stirred up uh, a certain level of uncertainty in our hearts. And so I hear more people today inside, outside the church, in neighborhoods, in our community, I hear people asking really big questions these days. Questions about the purpose of life. I, I have, I'm just finding more and more people sort of scratching their heads and wondering, like, why are we here? Why are we Am I on this planet? Like, what is the reason that I take oxygen in and blow carbon dioxide out, and do all these things that I do? Like, what's the purpose of my life? I, I'm hearing these questions. Like, people are really wrestling with these things. Or, or where do I belong? Like, it, as I look around at society and I look at all the different groups of people, which one do I fit in? And, and who do I identify with? And what am I really a part of? I think people are wondering what am I a part of? Like, where do I where do I get this sense of community? Um, where? Where do we get our identity from? Like, how do I find my own identity? Like, who am I? Like, some of these things have been called into question. So it seems like we're in a season right now kind of waking up from a nap. You know how sometimes you wake up from a nap and you're kind of groggy? And that's kind of like where I feel like culture is right now. Like, we're waking up from this nap. It's like time we answered some questions so that we actually become coherent about what we're doing so we actually have direction with our lives and where we're going because there's no... There's no button we can push right now that just resets everything. And yet moving forward with a sense of peace and purpose requires that we answer these questions. Uh, That's true for you and I as individuals and that's true for us as a church. If we want to go where we want to go, Individually and collectively, we need to wrestle with these larger questions. That's why I believe this passage in Romans 8 is just so incredibly impactful and important for us today, because I think it answers this on some really deep levels. So I want to start reading in verse 14. We're just going to read a few verses and we'll talk about it just a little bit. But Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul's writing, continuing this letter. He's been writing, writing, writing to this church. And then he comes on and he says, "'For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father.'" The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this, I think, has fascinating implications, and we have a remarkably relevant real-time example of what Paul is describing with some of the language that he's using here. Um, For the past two weeks, if you've turned on the news, any sort of news source, you've been inundated with the, the news and information regarding the British royalty, right? You've seen everyone paying attention to what's happening, obviously, in the UK. We've seen firsthand... What it means to be, what Paul is calling here, an heir. We see what it means to be an heir. To be an heir means you are a part of a family, right? And specifically, to be an heir, it speaks to privilege. It speaks to opportunity. It speaks to wealth. It even speaks, in some sense, to responsibility. And I'll get, get to that in just a little bit. But there's this, like, royal domino effect that we've been watching take place with the passing of the Queen of England. And there are implications for the heirs, so, I mean, it's just unbelievable when you think about this. Paul says, You and I have been adopted as sons and daughters, we have been adopted. He uses the most intimate term for father that the people of this day had, this word Abba, which is also a great name for a band if you're into it. But the word Abba was this intimate word that that meant like daddy. It was like this intimacy, this knowing of the father, the father knowing you. He says, you cry out like father, the most intimate form of, of, of relationship. And then three times in one verse, he uses this word heir. You are heirs of God. You are fellow heirs with Christ is what he says. So so talk about just cause for maybe pausing and taking an assessment of where we are in life, right? You have been adopted. You are sons and daughters. You are heirs of God. So Paul continues on, and then in verse 31, he asks a really obvious question, and I love this because he puts this out in front of us, and I think we have to wrestle with it. He says, what then shall we say to these things? What do you say to these things? So, he's inviting us to take a look, like this is where you are. Now, make an assessment, like find yourself on the map. This is your location. This is who you are. What do you say about this? And he's doing this because I believe what, what I need and what you need is to come to some conclusions about what Paul is presenting to us. When he says, um, What do you say about these things? Or, or What then shall you say to these things? he's not just talking about what he just said, he's actually talking about what he's been presenting for the last several chapters. In chapter five, He spoke about this peace that we have with God because of Jesus. And and, and not just peace, but also life. Like you have life because of what Jesus has done. And more than a debt paid, there's like life given. That's what chapter 5 was about. And then chapter 6, he talks about the reality of you and I being dead to sin. That at one point, sin, our brokenness was like a slave master in our life. And that has been broken. That relationship has been ended We've been set free. In chapter 7, he unpacked the freedom from the law, freedom from religiosity, freedom from moralism, freedom from empty religion. Then chapter 8, last week, we saw he was talking about the gift of God's Spirit being given to us. He refers to it here in verse 17, this idea that the Spirit is with us, guiding us, helping us, speaking to us. It's like the wind that blows in our sails. That's what he's describing. And now this, now he comes to this point and it's like this, this, this climax where he says, and you are heirs, you're sons and daughters of God, like that's who you are. And so he puts it all together and he goes, so what do you say about this? What, what do you say about this? And I want you to think about this. I mean, here's a moment in the middle of your life, and I'm, I mean, a lot of us, we're kind of smacked somewhere in the middle of our story, right? And here's a moment where we can look back and we see hopes and we see dreams and we can see ups and downs. We see mistakes we made. We see great things we did. We, we have this jumbled history, but right now in this moment, regardless of what's gone on in the past, there's a moment right now where somebody's looking at you and saying, you are an heir of God, you are a son. You are a daughter of God. What do you say about this? What do you say to these things? So Paul continues on, and if you, let me just say this: if you ever need encouragement, like if you ever wonder whether or not God is for you, I just want you to go to Romans chapter eight and start reading in verse thirty-one. Because listen to what Paul says because he answers the question for us he at least like puts words in our mouth that should be in our mouth when we come to this realization he says what shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against god's elect it is god who justifies who's to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, In other words, what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, do you realize that God is for you and the universe that you live in is rigged in your favor? That's what he's telling us. In all of this, when you think about it, it starts answering some of life's biggest questions, doesn't it? Like talk about identity. Let's think about identity for a moment. We struggle so much with finding identity in this culture. Do you realize how this revolutionizes the way you think about who you are? I mean, people will identify with their work until their work fails them or it becomes a means to an end. Or we, we identify with sports until our bodies begin to break. We identify with academics. We identify as being, uh, as, as being parents or being children or how much money we have or the house we live in. We have all these things. All of those things eventually fade. They all eventually let us down. But when you hear this, when you hear what Paul just said, like, you are sons and daughters. Like, who can condemn you? Who can bring a charge against you? Who can take anything from you? Like, nobody. What can separate you? No one can. When I hear those words and I think about the reality of them and I let them seep into my soul, that I am a son and you are a daughter, when I think about those things... That eradicates the worry. That eradicates the the scarcity thinking that I move through my days with. It it shoves out any sense of greed. It just makes me a different person. when You and I start living like heirs. So it answers this question. I mean, there's identity there, right? Or, Or a sense of belonging. There's this place that he describes where you belong. There's this community of brothers from other mothers and sisters from different misters, you know, and we all get together in this place and they are part of this with you. That's what this is. From the very beginning, the church was designed to give people a sense of place and a sense of belonging in fragmented cultures. So it gives us this idea, like, where do I belong? Man, there's this place I belong. There's brothers and sisters here. Or, or the question around purpose, This has massive ramifications on how you and I answer the question of why am I here? Uh, I was, obviously because of the news, I was thinking about King Charles. I've seen his picture on all sorts of different places, you know, in the grocery store and, you know, online, all the different places I've been seeing his face. And I just thought, you know, I thought, isn't it interesting, you know, that he wasn't off like living out in the country somewhere, like doing like a regular job, And uh, like doing his thing, and then somebody called him and said, hey, by the way, uh, you're an heir, and you probably ought to wash up and put on your best suit because you got a job to do. Like that's not the way it went down, right? He didn't just be like, oh man, I better get the good suit on and then show up to work the next day. There has been, he has been living as an heir his whole life. Are you with me on this? You see where I'm going with this? There has been purpose and intentionality. As a member of the royal family, there were implications of of that on his life from the very beginning. And so he served the purposes of the family because he is an heir. What does that mean for you, right? This is huge, by the way, and this is largely missed in Western Christianity and it's created a malfunction of our faith. The kingdom of God is all around us. Jesus said this over and over again. He said, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is available to you. The kingdom is around you. The kingdom is here. It has arrived. We already live in it. It's not some faraway destination that we got like punched a ticket and we're hoping to get into. And the story that's told in the Bible is that the kingdom has come for the renewal of all things. So that God can renew and redeem the world. God is renewing and rebuilding and redeeming life through his kingdom. Which means when Paul says you and I are heirs, we are sons and daughters, it means we aren't waiting for somebody to call and say it's your turn. And then we just suddenly start living this out. It means right now we live with this purpose and this intentionality as members of this royal family. Of this present kingdom, right here. So I want to explain this this way, and I just want you to understand what I see when I see you. You are culture makers, you are culture makers. How you communicate, what you create, Um, The way that you go about your work, the way that you engage your work, the way you think about the workplace that you work in, the way that you recreate, the things that you support with either your money or your laughter or your entertainment, like whatever you do, all of those things, they all shape culture. You are a culture maker. And what's interesting is the gospel shapes you. And the gospel shapes me. The gospel makes us less selfish people. It increases the common good. It increases philanthropy and generosity. Uh, It leads to acts of mercy and justice. It makes work and workplaces more humane. It makes art something that's more hopeful, music something more hopeful. It makes race relations more healthy. The gospel changes us. It changes lives. And then through those changed lives, the gospel changes everything. That's what the gospel does. And so, so there, there's days when I sit back and I dream about it and I think, what if there, if there was a critical mass of people living life, living lives and, and, and making culture in ways that express the gospel, that there's mercy and there's justice and there's love and there's hope, that it could change the fabric of a place in which they lived. If enough culture makers make culture from gospel-centered spaces, I believe we could shape a city and we just might change the world. And that's what Paul's getting at. Your identity changes. Your community, it exists. Your purpose, it's defined. If God is for you, who could be against you? So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you as an individual? What does this mean for us as a church? Their implications. And I believe that this results in an intentionality, and specifically about intentionality in terms of where we invest our lives and our resources, where we invest ourselves. And I mentioned at the top of the service that I want to cast some vision today, and I want to offer some some vision for um, even a challenge, I would say, for our own individual lives, but then even for us collectively. And I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about investing in you. I want to talk about investing in us. And I want to talk about investing in the city. You, us, and the city. So first, let's talk about investing in you. Most of my biggest regrets, and, and this is, I mean, if I went around the room we pulled this, I think we'd find it true. Most of our biggest regrets are found when we attempt to resolve life's questions with answers that didn't work. We look back and we go, man, I had this blank. It was like a fill in the blank, and I took this answer, and I filled in the blank, and it just didn't work for my life. And what I'm frequently surprised by in my own life is how little I nurture the very things that reverse the effects of those decisions. Um, Here's what I've discovered in my own life, that my life is exceedingly better when I invest in my own soul. Um, when, I, when I participate in times of worship like this morning, I mean, you guys all had a choice of where you could be today, and I'm glad you were here. I think when you invest in times like this, when you say, no, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be a part of this, I, when I do that, it does something. When I start my day, I don't do this every day, by the way. I'm not a perfectionist as far as this is concerned, but the days when I start my day by like praying and like reading my Bible and reflecting, journaling, like listening in and leaning for, in, in for God, When I engage in gospel community, when I do life with other like-minded people who are thinking about how to live the gospel out, it changes me. But I also also have to choose to invest in those places. It doesn't happen by osmosis. As a church, you know, one of our greatest goals is to give you the necessary um, ingredients for the soil so that your soul can grow. That's probably too many soil-soul things to say in one sentence, but... But that's kind of what we hope for. Like, can we create like a, like a, a really good, healthy environment where you can do things? So like, we have gatherings like this one, you know. and there's groups, and, and there's classes, and there's courses, and there's books, and there's resources. There's even people that will come alongside of you. The only thing that we can't do is make the decision for you. At some point, you have to say, no, I'm gonna nurture this. I'm gonna invest in my soul. I'm gonna do things that actually build up this thing because that's actually where I find the resolution to the questions that I'm a- asking in my heart. And here's what I've noticed. Every single person that I've ever met who had a rich life in the spirit has also made the decision to invest time and energy watering their soul. Like they worked the gospel into their lives. They, they thought about like how does, this, how does this influence the way I do my job or the way I live with my family or the way I interact with my neighbors. They've worked it out. And so that's my first challenge. If you're an heir because of the gospel... Where are you letting the gospel soak into your life? What kind of effort are you investing in yourself? Are you investing in your own soul? Second thing I said is, is us, investing in us. Um, by the way, let me just say this. My objective and our staff here at B4, our objective is not to build a great church. That is not our goal. Our goal is to build a great city. Our goal is to shape the city by shaping people with the gospel. But the way that we shape people is through the local church. I've said for years, I truly believe this. Jesus is the hope of the world. The crazy thing is, he made us the delivery system. So, in that regard, I think church matters. This matters. What we do together matters. And and I think there are few things that are as beautiful or life-giving as when the church, like the local church, is firing on all eight cylinders and it's like doing all the things like God wanted his church to do and be, like all of that. I think it's beautiful. But the truth is, it doesn't happen without you. Um, Our desire here is to create a culture of service, not a culture of being served. Um, it's, It's kind of an interesting thing, you know. I think sometimes we treat everything like Walmart or Costco, you know, we're like we walk in and we know what we want, we got our list, and so we come in and sort of self-serve, grab the things off your shelf, do your thing, get in the shortest line, get to your car and go home. And it's easy to translate that to the church and start treating the church like Walmart, you know, like you come in, you get your stuff, and you, and you do what you wanted to do, and then you get out and you go. But I just want to challenge your thinking that this is not, this isn't a spectator sport, this isn't a big box store. I want you to think about this more as a, as a farmer's market, right? And like we all bring what we have to the market like every Sunday, you know, we're bringing things. Maybe it's on Saturday, maybe it's on Wednesday, but we're bringing stuff, right? And so some of you, you know, you're like, you got honeybees and you're growing your honey in the, in the backyard and some of you make soap because that seems like everyone sells that at farmer's market, is homemade soap. So some of you are making soap and some of you got soy beeswax candles that you're doing, you know, oh, we all got our own thing, Right? You've got vegetables, but you bring it together, and that's what the local church is intended to be, this place where we serve each other and we bring it together, and it's more organic farmer's market than it is Costco. Are you with me on this? And here's what I've come to realize the benefit goes both ways. Yeah, you bring your, your thing, but then you also receive, and there's like this beautiful thing, but then also there's something about you contributing. Um, I've been asked over the years, people have said, like, what do you think the best tool is for discipleship? Like, what's, what's the best thing? You know, what's, what's the class? What's the course? What's the book? You know, is it a sermon? Is it, is it preaching? Does preaching change lives? I would love to tell you that I think preaching is the number one way for you to be discipled. Specifically, listening to my preaching is the most important. Important thing you could do, you know? Problem is, most of you don't remember what I said last week, right? Or two weeks ago at least, yeah? So if I said that, I'd be lying to you. And what I have said for 25 years, and this has been my experience, it's been what I've observed, is this the best way to get into community, the best way to be transformed by the gospel is to roll your sleeves up and serve. That's it. That's what Jesus did. He took a basin and a towel, and he knelt at his disciples' feet, and he washed their feet, and he served, and he said, this is the example. This is what you do. You didn't, you didn't come to be served. You came to serve. In fact, this summer, we sat down with a, a few folks who did just this. Um, kinda, some of them knew around here, and they just said, man, what am I going to do? And they just jumped right in. And so our team just did a little interview with them, put together just some relevant parts of their story. They all have beautiful stories, but I just want you to sit back for a moment and I just want you to listen to these stories of folks who rolled their sleeves up. Watch this with me.
1: My name is Mackenzie and I've been serving in kids ministry for almost a year. I moved to Beaverton about two years ago and when I started coming to B4, I really wanted to get connected, so I reached out to the Volunteers Department and they connected me with the Kids Ministry. I love seeing the little brains just soak up um, all of the Jesus that they can, and it's so cool to see them dancing and singing and laughing. Serving at B4 has impacted my life in a way of making me feel so much more connected to my community. I think that's one of the biggest things that I hold true to myself is serving others, and I really love that that's part of B4's mission is serving the community that we're in. And so by serving in kids, it's also make me feel like I'm doing a service to the community. My name is Ian and I've been serving in the experience team as an usher and greeter, and I've been serving for a year. COVID happened and I also moved to the Southwest of Portland. Through that, I was seeking a community of believers who I can connect with. And so that what led me to Before Church. It was a Google search where I was churches near me, and I went to the Before website, and I saw so many ministries on their website. And uh, the first Sunday, I met Larry, and he said, next Sunday, look for me. And next Sunday, I, I showed up because somebody said, come look for me next Sunday. From there, it was me joining the experience team. It was me being just part of the the family. My favorite part being part of the experience team, I would say, is the smiles that I get from the people every single Sunday. And also the the connections and relationships that I've formed with the people within the team have really been, I would say, a blessing where you have people asking you, how can I pray for you? How are you doing?
2: My name is Joanna Gazetta. My friends call me Jay. I serve on the City Serve Ministry and have been doing that for the last 18 months. So four years ago, I was baptized here and I really wanted to serve the Lord, but I didn't know what I should be doing. The Lord opened my eyes to say, You need to take your skills as a landscape designer and go out and start helping these homebound elderly people. Uh, Tim and I were just two of us working this one house, and it was in Beaverton, and it, the weeds were up to our waist. And we looked down the street, and along comes this woman with three kids. And they walk up to this us and they go, Do you need some help? And we said, well, well sure. <laughs> so they got in, they worked so hard. And then the neighbors across the street, a woman and her child, her high schooler came over and they said, can we help? And we said, yes. And so what it made me realize there touched me so much that when we go into these neighborhoods, people are watching. And that's what I hope to do with the neighborhoods that people will come out and they'll go, we want to take care of our neighbor. and. I believe that that will happen.
0: I love those stories. Um, you know, our church has changed a lot over the last three years, and uh, A good chunk of us in the room right now are pretty new around here, uh, myself included. So those of you that maybe you've been coming recently, I've only been here about two and a half years. Um, But can I just say something that we've noticed lately? God is up to something at our church. Some really cool things that are happening around here. In fact, here's just an interesting stat. We were just talking as a staff this week at one point, and I found this out, that 481 of the kids that have attended our church in the last year, it was their first time coming to our church. 481. That's a lot of new folks coming. Yeah, that's really good news. Um, That means there's families just coming out of the woodwork. And, you know, just there's so many statistics like that, just hearing so many folks, so many I've met that you're, like, new around here, and I love it. Um, Right now, every week here, there are more and more people becoming a part of what we're doing, which the reality is, like, from a leadership standpoint, I look at it and I think, Well, we actually need more people to invest their time and energy like serving kids and doing what Mackenzie's doing and and joining a team. And we need that at like a record level around here. Um, So if you're wondering how to get connected or how to make an impact, there is no better place to do that than through service and investing in us, investing in what we do together. Um, There's a QR code that's going to be, it's on most of the pews in the room. Um, There's a QR code on this little thing I'm going to talk about in just a moment where you can scan that and you can go to our website. There's opportunities for you to plug in there's a few basic ones where we need needs but then also just for you to say hey here's who I am and here's what I'm good at where can I help you we have a team that helps place people in the best fit for them and so I would love to encourage you to do that so um, that leads to my last investment so investing in you investing in us and then investing in the city if you've been here for more than a week you've probably heard us talking about being for the city right And I want to explain what that is for a moment. And it certainly means that we want to be for the city that we live in and work towards its renewal and its redemption. But it's also a posture that we believe God has called his people to live with. It's actually rooted in Jeremiah chapter 29, but it's sprinkled throughout all of the scripture. And it's this idea that is really simple, that God has called his people to seek the shalom of the places where he has taken them. Like wherever you are, God brought you there so that you could seek the peace, the prosperity, the goodness of those places, to work for mercy and justice, to engage in the good of the people, to to be a force for renewal and, and redemption. That means... That for us, when I think about what we're called to do, we are called to make a difference in the Portland metro area and around the world because we are for the city, we carry this posture. Um, historically here at B4, and I'm just going to explain this for those of you that are new. Um, historically, during the Advent season, so coming up in December, we would talk for a few weeks about all the projects that we want to do around the world, the impact that we want to make, and then we would you know, ask you to give above and beyond your normal giving for those four weeks. And then we would say, well, here's the money we have. Like, okay, like, what do you think we might be able to do this next year with all this like, extra that, that you, we've brought in? And uh, this year we're going to change that. We're doing things a little differently by starting this conversation now. And we're doing this because we don't want to just sit and say, what do you think we could do? We have a sense of what God's asking us to do. We have high expectations for the year to come. And we're launching a new new initiative that's called the For the City Initiative. And we're narrowing our focus and expanding our impact, specifically over the next 18 months. Um, And we want to see us invest for impact. How do we invest for impact in our city? And so as a result, we're focusing primarily on four things. Water, education, poverty, and churches, and I want to talk about each one of these. Water, poverty, education, and churches. The the first thing is water. Um, It seems ironic to me as we kind of come out of this season of pandemic. We're so afraid of a disease. We took all of these efforts to try to protect people. It's kind of mind-blowing. It actually is heartbreaking for me when I sit back and I realize the number one humanitarian crisis in the world, the number one killer in the world is waterborne illness. A lack of clean drinking water kills more people every year than any other single thing. And it's solvable. Like, it's fixable. It's something we can actually, we can do something about it. And and so for years, you know, we've kind of uniquely had this, like, unique space here at B4 where we've been called into certain situations to provide clean water and we've developed in-house municipal water systems that can be delivered to various villages and cities. And so um, we have this goal that in the next 18 months between now and the end of 2023, we want to deliver 10 municipal water systems to developing communities around the world. That's Our first objective. How do we bring clean water to these cities? If you go to the churches and the pastors that we work with and you ask them the most difference that gets made, when we start bringing clean water, the church has a voice in those communities and the church grows and thrives in those places. And so we're going to partner with churches in planting municipal water systems uh, next year. That's the first one. The second one is education. Uh, I asked uh, Mark Nicholas, who leads our justice and mercy ministry around here, I said, hey, if I were to just say how many kids around the world, like we do a lot of things, we support tons of missionaries and organizations, but I said, what's the hard number on the number of kids that like, if we weren't here, like if B4 just evaporated, they wouldn't get educated, they might not get fed, like, they, like their life would be radically different if we weren't here. And he said, that number is actually pretty, hard, pretty easy to nail down. He said, it's around 500. Like, there's lots of other kids we influence, but there's 500 kids around the world that, like, we are responsible for their education and their development into adulthood. And so we sat together, and it took us a long time to get to 500, and I said, what do you think about us doing 1,000? Can we get to 1,000 by the end of next year? That means building a school or two or three or four by the end of next year. And Mark said, I think we can do it. I think it's time that we do it. And so our goal is that we want to educate 1,000. We want to be continually educating 1,000 kids by the end of 2023 in the developing world. That's the education piece. The third one is poverty. And uh, for the past several months, I've had conversations. I've been driving around. I've been driving around Beaverton and looking at some of the most impoverished parts of our city. Poverty is like right all around us. And I just, my heart's been breaking. And I've been saying to people, how do we move the needle on poverty in our city? like right here where we live, where we like drive past it every day. And I'm talking about like the poverty that we're gonna have to live with 20 years from now if we don't do something in this moment. Like how do we move the needle? How do we change this? And so we've been brainstorming and talking and thinking about, again, like what are the things that God's already landed in our lap? And then recently there was an article in the New York Times and it, it said some really positive things about the church. And so I leaned in because when was the last time the New York Times said something positive about the church? And so I was reading the article and basically they were describing how Programs like our after-school program that we do are one of the most significant ways to lift kids out of poverty and break generational poverty for their families. And so I read this, and we're in, at the moment that I read that, we were already having this dream. Right now, we do one day a week after school for Barnes Elementary across the, school, across the street. William Walker Elementary has been approaching us and saying, hey, what would it look like to do more partnership with you guys as a church? We've got these two beautiful relationships, and we said, what would it look like? And this is, this is a huge huge goal for us. But what would it look like for us to have four days a week for two schools, an after-school program, so that we can really get invested in these families' lives? That means more staff to run it. That means way more volunteers to make it happen. But what would that look like to do that? And so our goal is that by the fall of next year, we are launching an uh, all day or all after school, all week, except for Friday's after-school program for those two schools. That's our objective for the next 18 months. So um, that's the third one. And then finally, um, we want to invest in churches. One of the highlights for us as a church, one of the highlights for me is uh, watching Central Victoria in our parking lot come to life and, uh, and grow and thrive as a church. Uh, the revitalization of Bridgeport Church during the pandemic. Many of you may not even know about that, but we got the chance to restart and relaunch Bridgeport down in Bridgeport Village. Um, We we got to be a part of launching All City Church with Joe Gruber over on the east side of Portland. And it's been beautiful things. And the single greatest way for us to shape our city and to create culture is through the planting and revitalization of gospel-centered churches. And, uh, I have great hope for our metro area, and I'm so tired of my friends that live in other states calling me and asking me why I live in such a hellhole. <laughs> Anybody else get those phone calls of family members like, "Are you guys okay down there?" You're like, you're, "It's not Vegas." I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> but I get tired of it. You know, there's a part of me because here, here's the deal: like, I believe that God has great hopes for our metro area. You know why? He's put us there. He's put us here not to hide, not to just wait out time and hope it all goes away. He put us here to be a light in a dark place. And so I have hopes for this city. I have hopes for our community, for all the surrounding communities. And so we want to plant, and this may sound like a really small thing, but but it's it's a big thing in a city like ours. We want to be personally responsible for planting three churches or revitalizing three churches in the Portland metro area over the next 18 months. If we can get three more thriving churches, we believe that starts building that critical mass that shapes and changes a culture. So all four of these are under this heading of um, of the For the City initiative, and we're talking about investing for impact. We're gonna talk about that for the next several months. We're gonna talk about it at Christmas. We're gonna talk about it in the new year as we do this. Our team, by the way, they created this fun way to keep this sort of front and center for you, and the lobby is decorated with a bunch of these today, but we want you to take them home. Please take them home. Because the idea is if we just put this someplace in our house, uh, we just wanna make it fun for you as an individual or as a family, just to start filling this thing up. If your kids wanna fill it with pennies, we got a big box here. You can come any Sunday and just dump the pennies out. If you wanna put checks it, we'll take checks. If you have stock certificates, we'll take stock certificates. Like, we will figure out a way to make it work. But the idea is that just between now and the end of the year, you'd be filling this up, dumping it off, and then by the end of the year would be kind of the final moment, and then we'd start talking about our plans and what we're going to do. I had one couple after the last service, they both looked at each other after the service, and they said, we both know, they both knew, they said, we're going to bring this amount every single Sunday in the box, and we're going to dump it in there. I said, I hope there's a lot of people just like you today. That's what I'm hoping for um also there's a qr code that's on here so you can also give online you can give that way as well um, but we're doing this in lieu of our advent giving and really it's because we have bigger goals than we've ever had before in terms of local and global impact so i encourage you to take this with you and uh pray about this as we do it as well now, let me say this i'm going to pray our team's going to come back out and um they're going we're going to sing a song together but uh I was in a conversation with somebody and they said, what do you really hope for us as a church? Like, what, like even just this weekend and like the days ahead and I said three things. I want us to be spiritually formed. I want us to be formed by the spirit. I want us to, not, not just like formed by the intellect, but I want the spirit of God to be forming who we are as a church. And then secondly, I said, I want to be culturally impactful, like I want to make a difference in our city. I want to make, I I say it this way. I want, if we were to disappear, I would want our community to to ache because we were gone. That's the kind of difference that I want to make in our city. And I want us to be deeply invested, all of us. Uh, I want you to, I want you to, to have this deep sense that you're a part of making all of this happen. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now and I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing together. Jesus, um, I don't think there's anything more audacious than you coming to this planet eradicating moralism and religiosity, eradicating dead religion, and opening up a new life and a new line of communication with the one who made us. And so when we talk about audacious things, I just think it's a drop in the bucket compared to what you've already done for us. And so this morning, as sons and daughters, as fellow heirs with you, we ask that you would guide us, give us direction. Would you infuse us with life and resources so that your church can shine in this place? Jesus, we wanna make an impact for you. That's our biggest desire. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's worship together.
2: Let's just sing this
1: out, not only in agreement and out of the posture of receiving, but as a prayer for our community.
0: benediction, if you're willing to hold out your hands to receive it, I offer this to you. May the favor of the Lord be upon you, and may you know that he is with you, that you are heirs, you are sons, and you are daughters, and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much.